0: This is Jan Swift. Thank you for listening to this special rebroadcast of an interview we did with Don Baquet back in 2018. Don is the author of A Walk in the Park, a Vietnam comedy. And in this interview, he really shares his humorous memories from the war. He was very lucky um, serving in the Army Special Forces as a Green Beret. He shares the comedy and also the poignant Account of what happened in Vietnam as life doesn't always go as we plan. I want to thank you for listening to Discover Lafayette. I hope you enjoy this rebroadcast as much as I do. Thank you. This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Discover Lafayette is recorded in the offices of Raider Solutions, a technology company located in the Light Center in Lafayette, Louisiana. Raider offers a complete fleet of IT solutions for businesses of all sizes. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work, we understand. If you're wondering if Raider Solutions can help your company, please visit RaiderSolutions.com. Today's guest is Don Bacay, who has distinguished himself in so many ways. And Don, I'm not sure where to start. Your day job is as a financial service provider with Mass Mutual Life Insurance. You're also a former legislator, having represented District 43 in Lafayette from 1988 to 1992. As chair of the Lafayette Chamber of Commerce, Don supported consolidation of our city and parish governments so as to provide more cost-effective services for all citizens. He was also the founding chair of Leadership Lafayette, which offers training for community leaders. Hundreds of people that we all know have used the insights from Leadership Lafayette to become more aware of what it takes to run our community. They've gone on to become elected leaders, community servants, and friends whom we all love and in 2015 Don released a book that we're going to talk about entitled A Walk in the Park a Vietnam comedy and it's a book about the foibles of the Vietnam war in which she served in the 5th special forces and we know it as the Green Berets Don Thank you for joining us. Well,
1: thank you for asking yeah, me. And yeah, yeah. And it's exciting to be here.
0: I'm really thrilled about this. We just got off some discussions about um, dialogue on race. We know each other as friends in the community, and you supported me when I ran for office. And so you're a special friend to me in my life. I just want to let you tell your story today, and including how you came about publishing your book. So if we can, I guess, jump in first. You grew up, um, you're from Lafayette. Your family's from this area. I am from Lafayette.
1: I actually spent four years in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. My dad uh, was working with the Chamber of Commerce, and he was uh, posted to North Carolina. So eighth through the 11th grade, I actually went to school in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. then moved back here. Back here. And uh went to UL, LSU, mm-hmm. and then to the Army. Yeah. And that's where the that's where the story starts.
0: You know, it's it's interesting. Before we started taping the podcast, I shared with you, I didn't even know your background in the military. When I met you when you were a state representative, I I just saw you as this very accomplished, very open minded legislator. And now that I've read your book, A Walk in the Park, I think I understand more about your mindset. You've kind of I've seen things maybe that made you be more open-minded about life.
1: Well, one of the things about uh, as as I look back on it, Vietnam had a huge influence on my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, I never ever believed I would go into the army. The book is about that. Right. I, when I was in college, I was the the Alfred E. Newman from <laughs> Mad Magazine. You know what? Me worry and. Right. And at at that time, I, I've since had LASIK surgery, oh. so I don't wear glasses. Mm-hmm. But back then, I was considered legally blind, and I thought the army's never going to take someone who's legally blind.
0: Well, they they were not supposed to.
1: They weren't. No. But but I got a draft notice, yeah. and. Uh, What happened is I was in law school at LSU, Mm -hmm. and law school asked me not to come back. And immediately, uh, Uncle Sam said, if they don't want you, we do. It's always nice to be wanted, but you want to (laughs) know who wants you worse. And and when I went through the uh, pre-induction physical, I passed. I was able to get my—but I needed a semester to graduate because I had transferred from UL without Mm -hmm. a degree— to LSU and uh, had gone to a year of LSU, then went to law school. I still needed a semester to graduate. So I had the draft put off for a semester. And during that semester, I explored my options. Mm -hmm. What could I do? And my, my, I come from a military family. My grandfather had been in the First World War. My father had been in the circle, Second World War. Both of them were officers. And so I thought to myself, I, I probably should be an officer, mm-hmm. too. That's how much thought I gave to right. the process. They were
0: not uh, pushing you or encouraging no, you to no. sign up. In
1: fact, uh, realistically, anyone who has experienced war will probably try to discourage their mm-hmm. children from participating. And uh, so, no, there was no encouragement there. But there was what was called college option OCS, where if you were graduating from college, Mm -hmm. you could be guaranteed to go to officer candidate school. And once you graduated from officer candidate school, you were automatically a second lieutenant. So I went and I interviewed, and I was told at that time that because my eyes were bad, I could not be in a combat arms, Mm -hmm. but I could— Probably end up in the adjutant general corps. I remember that. I didn't that. know what an adjutant general it was. It good. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. but they work in embassies, right? They entertain in safe places. They, mm-hmm. I don't know what they do, but I, I was thinking that maybe <laughs> I would waltz at embassy waltzes and entertain the young ladies at that the does embassy sound, and. Yeah. uh, That sounds like you, Don. Yeah. I I would have been good. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like going to a cocktail party. Exactly. Chit-chat. Absolutely. And uh, (laughs) so they told me that I I had to go to infantry OCS Mm -hmm. to get a branch transfer. So I went through basic training. I went through advanced infantry training and then went to uh, uh, infantry OCS at at, uh, Fort Benning, Mm -hmm. Georgia, and we got there in july and i remember the uh the commanding officer was a captain yoshida and he put us in formation and he told us he said he introduced himself and said i want you all to know that this is infantry ocs and every one of you will be infantry officers when you graduate and i thought to myself now the army wouldn't lie to me no. why would they tell me i was going to be in an in adjutant general corps Mm -hmm. when I'm obviously blind and I would be a danger to anyone if I lost my glasses not knowing who to shoot at. (laughs) Uh, So I just put that behind (laughs) me and merrily went along my way and I actually did very well Mm -hmm. in in officer candidate school, and graduated near the top of the class in the what they call the commandant's list.
0: And I understand people didn't make it, though, reading your oh. book. I mean, you lost—not not lost them, but, I mean, they were asked to leave. Sure. Kind of like LSU said, Don. Uh, absolutely. There's the door. Huh? You,
1: you had to have a desire to finish. Mm-hmm. You had to—everyone knew you're going to Vietnam. Question is how quick— if you wash out of OCS, you're going almost immediately. So
0: you didn't want to quit OCS. You well, of course, I was wanted
1: to be an mm-hmm. adjutant general corps, <laughs> and and if I washed out of Make OCS, I'd have been going straight to Vietnam. Right. Uh, so anyway, I graduated, and and interestingly, as I think back on it, in the twelfth week of OCS. We filled out what's called a dream sheet, mm-hmm. and in the Army, they say you can put anything down that you want on your dream sheet, you're not going to get it so in my o c s platoon, mm-hmm. I was in the first platoon, our platoon tactical officer was an ex special forces sergeant, and he uh he had he he was what we call. Strack. I don't even remember what Strack means anymore, but he just had it all together. Uh-huh. And he was very inspirational. And so two of my friends, who are friends to this day, uh, came up to me and they said, "Bake, we want to be in Special Forces.
0: Which is and the Green Berets. Which is the Green Berets.
1: Yeah. And you have to jump out of airplanes right. to do that. And I'm afraid of heights. Uh, yeah. and, and they said, <laughs> so we put down on their dream sheet, Airborne Special Forces. <laughs> And I put down—and in a way, they were challenging my manhood. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I could not be in Special Forces and couldn't jump out of airplanes. But the Army
0: wasn't going to honor that wish.
1: No, it's a a wish list. So I put down Airborne Special Forces Adjutant General Corps. Mm -hmm. Found out later, had I switched that, had I put Adjutant General first, I probably wouldn't have ended up in the Adjutant General Corps and not gone to Vietnam. But that being said, so— After that, the 12th week, and you have 26 weeks OCS, I kind of put that behind me. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to fast forward. It's in November. Cookie and I were engaged. Right. And we're going to get married. Cookie
0: Lipsy from Lake Charles. From Lake
1: Charles. Mm -hmm. And Cookie says, you know, we have to have a date. So when do you graduate from OCS? And I said, I graduate the 10th of December. Mm -hmm. She said, we're getting married the 14th of December. And I'm thinking to myself, "I I don't know. I really don't know if the Army's going to let me off. You know, I mean, it's, I don't have any control, but she's in charge.
0: Right, always. Uh,
1: And uh, still. 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 So, uh, on the, about a week before we're getting ready to graduate, so it had to be right around the 1st of December, they called us into formation and they said, we're going to read your orders. And so we stand out there, and everything in the army is done alphabetically. And so they start out, and I, Janet, I st- <laughs> at today I still can remember it like it was yesterday. They start out saying "Airborne," and calling, gonna, out, the calling lucky, out the lucky
0: uh, recipients of that. Arm. First
1: name they call out is Alderson, Henry Alderson, a good friend of mine. <clears throat> Pardon me, Alderson. Second name Bock. <laughs> When they said my name, it was like someone kicked me in the stomach. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you just so astounded by what you hear that you cannot believe it. But that was me. And I thought, this is bad. And uh, then I was number one on Special Forces. And I still, I had not read the book or seen the movie, mm-hmm. wasn't sure what Special Forces did, <laughs> but I knew that it wasn't. It was dangerous. It wasn't chit chat And it was not it was not dancing waltzes right. at the embassy. Right. You know?
0: And that wasn't what Cookie was expecting either.
1: Absolutely not. So then I've got to tell her. That's and,
0: where the and, book gets humorous. I just want to tell people that, that part, haven't read a walk that's in the part park. Of it. That is a funny, funny time that you're talking and, about.
1: And so what did I do? Uh, I lied. <laughs> <laughs> and and <laughs> I guess, I, I don't want to say all men do that, but you, if you don't know what to say, it's better not it's to
0: better, say. yeah. Don't ask permission. <laughs> no.
1: And uh, so I told her that I, they had lost my orders and that uh, I didn't know what I was going to do because I could not tell her mm-hmm. on the phone that I'm going into <laughs> no. Special Forces and Airborne. So my father came up for my graduation and he was reading a book called The Devil's Brigade. And in The Devil's Brigade, they were, this was in the Second World War, and there may have been a thousand men in The Devil's Brigade, mm-hmm. and maybe five of them lived. And oh my gosh. so he's carrying this book, and he said, That's you. This is oh. what's going to happen to you. You're going to die.
0: And there was a couple of curse words, if yeah, I remember was, from the and, book. And, you know.
1: <laughs> uh, it kind of upset me yeah. that he had taken that attitude. I thought it was a poor attitude to take. Oh. And he asked me, he said, how are you going to tell Cookie? And I said, let me figure that out. So we drove back to Lafayette. We got back late in the evening. And uh, Cookie said, have you gotten your orders yet? And I said, uh, yeah, I did. And uh, it looks like, well, in the meantime, I'd run into a guy in a bar, and <laughs> and and the guy was in Special Forces, mm-hmm. and he looked Spanish. And so I asked him, I said, tell me about Special Forces. I've got orders for Special Forces. And he said, you look Spanish. And I said, well, my mother's Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, do you speak any Spanish? I said, a little. He said, you're probably going to go to South America. They were chasing Che Guevara, if you remember mm-hmm. back then, yeah. and uh, I didn't know that. But he said it sounded got better a,
0: than Vietnam. <laughs> yeah,
1: they got a bunch of people in South America. Mm-hmm. So when I got to Lafayette, I told Cookie, I said, "It looks like I'm going to South America." Well, she had majored in Spanish, so she was so excited because I was going to South America, mm-hmm. and she would come as well, and. Uh, she said, Really? And I said, Yeah, it looks that way. And I said, But first, I have to go to Fort Benning for airborne school. Uh, and she said, But South America after that, I said, well, not exactly. We're going to go to Fort Bragg for special forces school. Mm-hmm. But she said, Then South America. And I said, It looks that way. Yeah, South America. Well, Cookie found out pretty soon that that wasn't probably going to happen. Uh, but my fear of heights,
0: I know, jumping and, out of planes and, is part you know, of being and, a and, Green Beret.
1: Look, people went through like airborne high, school yeah. that have never been in an airplane before, right. and they jumped out of Much it. Much
0: less having, yeah, a parachute on. They,
1: they indoctrinate you. They mm-hmm. teach you. It's repetition. And so once you do that, it's almost second nature. I mean, it's never fun. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a son-in-law today that's a paratrooper as well. He and we kid about night jumps. When you jump at night, you can't see anything. He he tells me he said every jump's a night jump, which means he closes his eyes oh, when he's jumping. Right. And right. so we we kid about that. Yeah. But um, what an adventure! Anyway, I went through, you were what twenty four then?
0: Twenty three. Young. 69. 20s. Uh,
1: yeah. It was in January sixty nine yeah, after so college. I, so I just turned 25.
0: Yeah, so young, but still mature.
1: Right. Old enough to know better. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're 18, you're not old enough to know better. Because
0: you were a volunteer. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So anyway, I went through the jump school, went to special forces school, and then got orders for Vietnam. And this, I, I talk about my book as being, in a way, kind of a spiritual book, because As I look back Mm -hmm. on what happened to me, the remarkable circumstances that I'm going to start telling you, relating to you, are almost like, well, my mother was Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. And you talk about a Jewish mother. There's nothing worse than a Puerto Rican mother (sighs) as far as spirituality. Mm -hmm. I mean, she prayed the rosary every day. Thank goodness. And no no doubt in my mind, Mm -hmm. God was listening to her. So anyway, I, I end up, w- one of the other things they told us, when before we went to Vietnam, they said, we would not be in special forces in Vietnam because there was no slot for a second lieutenant. So they said, you're gonna be an infantry officer, platoon leaders mm-hmm. in Vietnam, but you'll be the best trained platoon leaders. You might live a little bit longer. <laughs> when we got to Vietnam, I was with a friend of mine, Dick Boley, Mm who he wrote the, he's one of the guys that had put down Airborne Special Forces on his 12 week uh, wish list. Uh, Dick Boley had gotten a number from a sergeant at Fort Bragg, and he told Boley, he said, when you get to Vietnam, call this number. So Dick and I actually flew over together, Mm -hmm. seatmates, got to Vietnam, Boley called the number. It was actually the, the sergeant major in charge of special forces. And he, the, he asked, he, uh, there was 16 of us that went over on the same set of orders. all of us, second lieutenants, all of us special forces qualified. He said, how many of you are there? Boley said, 16. He said, I want all of you. So we got on an, an airplane. We flew to, we were in Saigon in Tan Sanut. We flew to the train for special forces, 16 of us. We went through two weeks of in-country training, and then they put us in a room, and they said, there are four cores in Vietnam, I-Core, II-Core, mm-hmm. three core IV-Core, 16 of you, four going to each corps. First four guys that raised their hand get to go. I had made a conscious decision not to die in Vietnam, and so I wasn't looking for he- for he- to be a hero. Right. I wasn't looking for fame and glory. I was looking, where is the safest place mm-hmm. for me to go? Mm-hmm. I-Corps was on the, the, the uh, DMZ, bordered north on, by the DMZ, uh, west by Laos. And there was a lot of stuff going on there. Three-Corps was around Saigon, and at that time it was very, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on there. Four-Corps was the Delta, and I grew up in rice fields. Mm-hmm. I know you can see a long, long way in rice fields. I decided I didn't want to go there. So by process of elimination, I said, I want to go to two corps. Four of us were chosen to go to two corps. Now, this is where the story gets kind of interesting, because we flew into the headquarters, Special Forces headquarters, which was in play coup. It was a C team, and the commanding officer was out of the country on R&R, but the deputy, the executive officer was there, and his name was Colonel Irizarry. And we walked in, four of us walked in, and he, he had our orders on the desk in front of him. And he looked at the orders and looked at us. And he pointed to me and he said, Baque. He said, The name is French, but you look Spanish. I mm-hmm. said, Well, my mother's from Puerto Rico. He said, I'm from Puerto Rico. He said, Where's your mother from? I said, She's from Caguas. He said, I'm from Caguas. He said, well, What was your mother's maiden name? I said, She was an Aponte. He said, I know your family. Isn't that something? Now, what are the chances well, of something like that slim happening? slim to none. And the other three guys are kind of looking around, saying, What do you, you know, what's going on?
0: He's blind and looks, yeah, Puerto Rican. <laughs>
1: and, and so then he, uh, Don. he says, Two of you going to North Two Corps, two are going to South Two Corps. Mm-hmm. He said, Where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to North Two Corps because there was a lot of stuff going on in South Two Corps, purely process of elimination, right? So I flew, and this guy, Sammy Henderson. Right, he and mm-hmm. I flew to Contum together, and uh, we report in. And the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel John Hennigan, and he's got our orders on the desk. And he looked at us. And he looked at the orders, and he said, "Bakey," he said, "You're from Louisiana." I said, "Yes, sir." So where'd you go to school? I said, "LSU." He said, "I'm an LSU graduate." And uh, now, what are the chances of that happening? And
0: I know he's an important part of your book. Oh he is. Yeah. a
1: wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. So. He sends me to a camp called Doc Peck. So I'm at an A camp called Doc Peck. Mm-hmm. Sammy goes to another one called Doc Siang. So we're separated. I report into Doc Peck. Colonel Hennigan told me, he said, I'm sending you to a camp hadn't been a shot fired in anger in six months. I'm thinking, there is a God. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is exactly what I want. We fly in under <sighs> fire. Helicopter starts jigging around, and the guy tells me, he says, uh, you know, we were taking fire. And uh, Captain Kozanowski, who was the camp commander, came down to the helicopter to greet his new second lieutenant. He said, uh, "He said, I'm taking out an operation tomorrow to see who was shooting at you. And he did not ask me to go, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. Uh, so I spent the night. The next day, <clears throat> I was assigned as what's called a uh, civic action officer. And I was, our job in Vietnam, Special Forces job, was to recruit, train, and lead in battle indigenous personnel. And we worked with the mountain yards and they were villages, mountain yard villages, mm-hmm. all around doc Peck. And I, I went to meet the village chieftain and at each place I had to drink some rice wine. <laughs> By the time I went back for lunch, I was completely <laughs> inebriated, barely could stay in the Jeep.
0: I didn't read that in your book. It might have been in there, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, it is, it is in the book. Oh my and gosh. Captain Kazanowski had gone out that morning <laughs> on an operation. They were ambushed right about noon. Oh, no. And he, w- he was killed in that ambush. He oh. was shot by a sniper. And we had to fire uh, artillery support for him to bring them back mm-hmm. into the area. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how many people... I may be the only one that's ever fired a four-deuce mortar completely drunk, but it was um, a very painful experience because it's very loud. Right. And um, all I was doing is dropping the shells. The sergeant was directing the fire. They brought Captain Kowalski back, and then I was assigned uh, to—Colonel Hannigan said, I want you to go to Contum. And uh, he assigned me, how are we doing on time? We're fine. Okay. He assigned me to go back to Khantoum, and he said, uh, I have a a job for you. And a couple of days later, he called me into his office, and uh, Sergeant Major Campbell was there as well. And uh, he said, I've got a job for you. He said, "Uh, what do you know about our mission in Vietnam? And really, I didn't know. No one had ever told me what the mission was. That's when Colonel Hennigan said... Recruit, train, and lead in battle, indigenous personnel, and he said, "We're we're supposed to uh, to pay them." Mm-hmm. And he said, "So the
0: country, the people that live there, the,
1: the mountain yards, their the partners. we recruited them. Uh-huh. So we had about there was supposed to be between three and four hundred mountain yards at each camp, each A camp. We had five A camps spread mm-hmm. in North uh, Two Corps. So he he said." uh, This job I'm going to give you is one of the most dangerous jobs we have. I I really didn't want to hear that. But he said, the, the, the Vietnamese are going to try to subvert you. They're going to try to ply you with alcohol and drugs. And I thought to myself, LSU. I, I mean, the guy remembers LSU. And, I'm
0: qualified, uh, yeah. So uh, oh,
1: he gosh. said, I, I want you to be my funds officer. Mm-hmm. And I heard fun. fun. He said F-U-N-D. I heard F-U-N. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself.
0: Like a cheerleader. I, I didn't yeah.
1: really know what a fun officer did. <laughs> but it sounded like fun. Mm-hmm well come to find out yeah. I was going to be in charge of paying all the people that worked for us in each of the camps so we had about 2000
0: mm-hmm.
1: mountain yards that we had to pay each month and uh, you
0: were in charge of that I was in charge money. of that yeah.
1: and that was, a Hennigan, lot of money. He, he was a lot of money he is a lot of money he he said, uh, how did you do in accounting? I said, I didn't do very well, sir. He said, At LSU. Can, can you add and subtract? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And he said, mm-hmm. do you know how to balance a checkbook? And I said, yes, sir, I know how to do that. And he said, well, it's very simple then. <laughs> he said, you get X amount of dollars in, mm-hmm. you pay out Y amount of dollars, and you're supposed to have Z left over. Does that make sense to you? I said, yes, subtraction, and addition, subtraction. And uh, so the, the amount of money was significant. Right. It was five million piastres. Mm-hmm. And they were wrapped in bricks of money with, tied with string.
0: Were they paper like what we look at bills? Yeah, just just,
1: like, just mm-hmm. like our paper dollars mm-hmm. are. But there were five million of them. Right. <laughs> and I would get, I, I, there's no way you could count. Mm-hmm. That much, but you could count the stacks. So when I went to pick up the money and sign for it, yeah. I would count the stacks. I'd put it in a mail sack. I looked like Santa Claus. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a huge sack of money that I would
0: in the middle of a war zone. You yeah, know I mean?
1: <laughs> and and uh, so then the, you know the first month I, I brought the money to Kantum, I counted it out. I went to the camps and gave it out, picked up the money, and then when I went to balance the books. It didn't balance. And um, I said, you know, Colonel Hennigan told me, he said, I want everything to balance. Mm-hmm. I, th- I said, oh. So I recounted everything, and it didn't balance again. Then I thought to myself, <clears throat> and this, again, I think is LSU, I thought to myself, five million of anything <laughs> is a lot. And they've got to count this stuff by hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they tied with string and all this, it's easy to miscount. So maybe— I was maybe a thousand piastres over, so I I had two safes. I had a, an audit safe and a and a, uh-huh. a, a a property safe. And I said I'm going to take that thousand. I'm going to put it in the property safe, which wasn't subject to audit. And uh, so if I'm audited, I'll I'll balance. And I said next month I maybe giving me five hundred under, right. so I could always move the money back and forth. And I was audited three times. They came to me three months in a row, audited me every time I balanced. Mm-hmm. They told Colonel Hennigan, I don't know what this guy's doing, but he's the best I've ever seen. And the auditor asked me, he said, how did you do this? And I thought to myself, I, I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> I said, it's simple addition safe. and subtraction. Yeah. He said, yeah, but no, no one ever balances. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, is balancing good? He said, yeah, balancing is good. I said, so I'm doing okay. He said, you're doing great. He, st- he told Colonel Hennigan, this guy's unbelievable. <laughs> so Colonel Hennigan, uh, he asked Colonel Hennigan if I could go around the country and teach other funds officers mm-hmm. how to keep the books.
0: Non-LSU graduates, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. They were probably Alabama graduates. <laughs> <but> <laughs> Aggies, we don't know. <laughs> so anyway, and, and that's the basis of the book.
0: The book is the, so it, well it, written. It's, it's so uh, entertaining.
1: I mean, and, uh, you know, I tell people— my experience in Vietnam was not heroic; it was comedic.
0: Well, and, uh, I think it was still heroic, though, and, Don, uh, to be there as a volunteer. And any day, uh, as we were talking about, any day, anything could happen sure. to a volunteer. I'm going to tell enlisted. you
1: one story from the book that I. People ask me, "What's the closest you ever came to dying?" And it was the pig story when mm-hmm. pigs fly. Mm-hmm. And what happened? This was in December of '69, and I had to go to a camp called Doc Peck. The camp that I had first been assigned to, and when I went out to the helicopter, there were five pigs in the helicopter, uh, four sows and one boar, that they were bringing out there for breeding stock, and they were huge Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs, and uh,
0: they weren't the little cute ones. They were not people. cute. They uh-huh. were
1: they were big. Uh-huh. Each of them weighed two three hundred pounds, oh and it was it was. It was was you
0: and the pigs. Me
1: and the pigs, (laughs) and they took off the the whole floor of the helicopter, and they were tied. Their legs were tied together. They were lying on their side. When they started up the helicopter, I found out immediately: pigs don't like to fly, and they showed (laughs) their displeasure (laughs) by expelling liquids. (laughs) And I won't go into what liquids they were, but they were all over the air the airplane. Well, as we were flying to Doc Peck, and I'll make it a little bit short. As we were flying to Doc Peck, the boar started to get loose. He was oh, jerking no. because he was upset about flying, mm-hmm. and uh, which his, you understood. Oh, well, I, yeah. I wasn't excited <laughs> about it either. But w- w- when he started jerking, his legs came undone, mm-hmm. and so his front legs were free. The back legs were still tied, and uh, he started jerking. Now there's four sows on the floor. He's jerking, and I, I thought to myself, I, I guess I ought to do something, but I wasn't sure what. And so <clears throat> I sat on his head, <laughs> and that was the wrong thing to do. Sometimes in life, you make decisions that are not in correct. In hindsight. <clears throat> and, yeah. and all of a sudden, you're, you're stuck with it. So I'm sitting on his head, and he's jerking me towards the door, and they fly with doors open. And the, the door gunner was, saw all this going on, and he's laughing, and he's talking on his mic. And the pilot turned around to me, and he looked, and he saw me on the pig's head and the pig jerking. And, and he handed me a thirty eight and he said, shoot him.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Well, there were several reasons I didn't want to shoot him. One, first of all, uh, animal
0: rights. You know, well, no, it
1: had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I was afraid that I might cut some hydraulic lines mm-hmm. and ran through the floor. And, and so I said, no, I, I'm I'm Okay. But but I wasn't right, and that pig kept jerking me to the door, and things run through your mind, you know. And one of the things I was thinking about was, this is a VC pig. This is an it could be hardcore NVA. This pig's gonna throw me out of the helicopter, and I'm gonna die. Uh-huh. And there's no medals for being killed by a pig. And there's no, I mean, how are they going to explain that to my wife? It's probably not even a workers' comp claim. I mean, you know? <laughs> no, uh, it's, a, it's a serious situation. Oh God, so there was a, a bar. The, the, the helicopters, you could close the doors, and mm-hmm. they, they closed up against a, a center bar. I grabbed that bar, and I was able to leverage then against the pig. Luckily, uh, we landed at, at Doc Peck. I was starting to get very, very tired. Mm-hmm. We landed at Doc Peck, and I kind of relaxed. And that pig jumped out of the helicopter and went running down the, <clears throat> the the runway. And the reason I know for sure he was either Viet Cong or NVA, he ran north. So I know for <laughs> sure he was heading towards North Vietnam. They actually recaptured him a couple of weeks later. And uh, my friend, uh, Jerry Alexander, who yeah. was in the, in the book, book as well, yeah. Jerry built a pigsty for the pigs. <laughs> and uh, the NVA hit that pigsty with a 122-millimeter mortar and killed all the pigs oh, about a month later. And they had no idea that they'd killed some of their own right. Uh, right. allies. God, Don. I'm sure they were all that type of, of pig. But anyway— uh I came home from Vietnam. I was very, very fortunate and uh and a changed person. I mean from what it you certainly had, seen. had an effect on yeah. me. It, it, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh and one of the things that, that Vietnam did, it encouraged me to be involved in politics because I saw there were political reasons for that war. Mm-hmm. And there are some things in the book that talk about that as well. The frustrations that we had as uh, combatants mm-hmm. with the, the rules and regulations that we had to uh, uh, adhere to. Uh, so I decided that when I I got back, I would run for public office. Mm-hmm. And, uh,
0: and you were elected. You served from— uh, Well, serve I'm going to start
1: before that. Before the uh, legislature, in 1974, mm-hmm. we had a change of government in Lafayette, mm-hmm. and went to uh, city council mayor, and then after that, parish council, right. and uh, uh, but I ran for for city council, and I didn't win, and I thought to myself, I never, I didn't earn the right to win. I, I think that that if you're going to be involved in politics, you have to earn the right to do it. And that's through public service. So I kind of de- dedicated my life at that time to be involved in the community and try to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there would be a time, and I would know when that time was, to to run for office. And it happened that it was in 1988. Right. 87. Right. Uh, when I ran.
0: And that was when uh, Buddy Romer
1: right. was elected. Buddy Romer and I both went in together. And, um Buddy Romer was defeated <coughs> in, in his reelection. I chose not to run for reelection, mm-hmm. so I limited my term.
0: Mm-hmm. Term limited.
1: I, yeah. was, was four yeah.
0: years enough?
1: It maybe wasn't, but I was placed in a situation where uh, I was a different kind of a legislator, mm-hmm. and I, I never really fit in. With the Baton Rouge crowd, and and we were going through redistricting, mm-hmm. and so they redistricted me, where I would have to run against Don Higginbottom, and Don is the the the, he's so the likeable, worst huh? kind <laughs> of candidate to run against because he's so likable. He is likable, and and so and I had done a lot of things, uh, including the David Duke I incident, that caused that. me yeah. uh, some angst mm-hmm. and caused the voters to kind of question. Uh, w- what is what is he up to? Mm-hmm. And so I just decided I wasn't going to run for mm-hmm. re-election and got out of. Uh,
0: I'd, I'd like to ask a question about that. When David Duke, was it when he was elected? Would you talk about that? You stood sure. up against uh, him being sworn this in. This was a, as, a special uh, an election. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, did he David, win? in
0: David Vitter, who who served there before?
1: No, he. Was
0: he before Vitter? It was uh, same seat, huh? Chuck
1: Cusimano. Chuck, yeah, Cusimano,
0: right?
1: The the legislator. Mm-hmm. He retired to run for judge. Mm-hmm. He ran for judge, and uh, David Duke. <coughs> that was an open seat at that time. John Treen and David Duke were in the runoff together. David Duke had never he was not uh, domiciled in the district, mm-hmm. but no one raised that issue. So you
0: have to do that by a certain time, or you waive the right of object no, I, I, that, in the in, race in, as in, far as in, the opponent. In, yeah.
1: If if John Treen was going to challenge it, there was a time frame for him mm-hmm. to challenge it. <clears throat> he didn't. He didn't challenge it. So now David Duke's been elected; he's got to be uh, seated in the legislature. Interestingly, our constitution says the legislature shall be the the she'll decide who is qualified to serve so final decision is the legislature and the the in order to qualify to be uh, a member of the legislature you have to be 18 mm-hmm. you have to be a citizen of the state and you have to be domiciled in the district in in the district mm-hmm. for one year david duke had run for president 6 months before he ran for the legislature and at that time he swore out an affidavit of domicile that was outside of the district so he had admitted mm-hmm. under oath yeah. that he didn't he wasn't qualified he didn't so we as the legislature had the final decision mm-hmm. and that's that's why I challenged him on constitutional grounds not on Racial beliefs, uh-huh. And uh, unfortunately, and I think members of the legislature that voted against me, I think, in retrospect, would say today, we made a mistake. Uh, we gave him a platform that we really didn't Let need. Let him
0: run for governor. And yeah.
1: uh, But anyway, mm-hmm. that being said, uh, I did not run for re-election. Mm-hmm. I came back. <clears throat> And continued my involvement in mm-hmm. the— um, You
0: did. I mean, you were a chamber—
1: um, Well, I'd been chamber president before, before that. But, I mean, you but, did.
0: You, you were very active in the community and started one of the co-founders of Leadership Lafayette. Right. You've done so much yeah. in our community. So it's, it's
1: been a fun ride. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> as I said, there's, uh, I have no regrets. As I look back on my life, there's nothing that I can say, I wish I'd have done this or wish I'd have done that. There are still things I want to do. Mm-hmm. but there's nothing that i right have to do so if my right. life ends tomorrow i'm still a happy well, guy uh, i
0: i would like to get in a comment about how you published your book again it's a walk in the park a vietnam comedy and and don you were talking about you you're not self published you were a partner with amazon offers a service creative press is that right. correct
1: Today it's so much easier to publish a book than it was in the past, because of Amazon. And I didn't realize it at the time, but you can you can write a book in Word, and you can upload it to Amazon at no charge, and they'll actually they give it to ISBN,
0: it from, like they they make it a book.
1: They make it a book, uh-huh. and you don't have to buy a bunch of copies. In the past, if you self-published, you'd have to buy. Maybe a thousand copies, mm-hmm. two thousand. Invest now. Quite bit, yeah. It's 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 uh, print on demand. Amazon has a, a a program called Create Space, and in Create Space, they will actually do the editing for you. And oh. you can put it up on Amazon without any editing. You can do whatever you want, mm-hmm. and you can publish it as an ebook. But I wanted I to. I like pub- the
0: hard book. I like
1: I, this. You oh, know. I, I've gotten to the point where I'm, most of what I do is read ebooks now. You do, but uh, many easier people want the me. hard, yeah. the, the print version. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sent it to CreateSpace, and I gave them what I thought I wanted to do, and they kind of manipulated it. They charge for that, to, but to it's not edit. an awful lot of money. Uh-huh. And then they give it to you—they a finished copy. You approve it. Then they put it on their, their uh, Amazon system, mm-hmm. and they market it for you. So it's a, it makes it very, very simple. It's a, if you're interested in Vietnam books, there must be 100, 200, 300 of them on Amazon today. Uh-huh. Because it is so simple for people to be able to publish their memoirs. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the past, that wasn't true. And what a beautiful way to document what happened
0: without having to go get a publisher, be rejected several right. hundred times. You know, you can just right. get it out there.
1: You know, I, I may never have found a publisher. Well, if, if, if uh,
0: it's very well written. I do okay. want to encourage Thank people you. to buy this.
1: And, and the neat thing about it is, if you want the book, you mm-hmm. go to Amazon.com, put in a walk in the park, a Vietnam comedy, then you have a choice. You can buy the ebook. Mm-hmm. Or you buy the print book, right? And it comes right to you,
0: right? Well, I love it. Um, and we, I do want to say again, you were taking a class with Carl Bauer, right? Our, our mutual friend, who's now deceased, but he encouraged you to to follow your dream Carl and was to such write a this wonderful book. person. Uh-huh. He, and, he really was.
1: Uh, we had politics in common mm-hmm. because he had been very involved, much senator. more involved than I was in politics. But uh, we had that in common, and we we developed a close friendship. Mm-hmm the only regret that I have in writing the book is Carl wanted to know how it ended. He was, he didn't want me to tell him. He said he wanted to read. And if, if, if you read the book, you'll see that my, my feelings about Vietnam changed over time. I, I went over there very much a hawk and I came home mm-hmm. very much a dove. And, um, I think Carl wanted to know that. And, uh, Unfortunately, he, he died just before I finished the book. Yeah. And, uh,
0: he was one of the—I mean, he was a prince of a man. And um, I know he inspired so many people. I'm so glad he encouraged you to write this book.
1: Well, it, Carl encouraged—he he inspired so many people. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> for me, that's kind of a, a lesson in life as well, that each of us has the power, the ability— to mentor people. I've always said, and I really believe this, that leadership comes out of mentorship. People don't know that they're leaders until you or someone else sees that and says, you have something special. Each of us is kind of a scared person inside ourselves. And we think, you don't really think of yourself as being something special unless someone lets you know that they think so. And so, I, for me, it's been a, a life lesson to try to encourage, mm-hmm. that's part of Leadership Lafayette, mm-hmm. to try to encourage people to let them know that they can do something special with their lives. Right, and uh,
0: to be a positive mirror yeah. of what they offer. Yeah, and you've done that in so many ways, Don. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're in the studio with Jason Sikora, with Raider Solutions and I see you've been writing notes and Jason has the luxury of listening and um, typically catches things I don't even think about asking. So. Uh, yeah, well, and some questions that I've asked before, uh, you talked about how, how first of all, thanks for being here, I, I appreciate it. Uh, you talked about how easy it was to release a book, but what was the hardest part about writing and releasing a book?
1: The hardest part is writing it, Jason. <laughs> to sit down, if, if I, it's the discipline to write. If I hadn't been going to that class every week and knowing that I had to do a chapter, Mm -hmm. you've got to discipline yourself to do anything in life. And so that was the hardest part. And maybe even harder than that is making the decision to start. If I hadn't found the letters, Mm -hmm. that was, again, an unbelievable situation where I found the letters that I had written to Cookie and I, and that was that was my manuscript. So be able, being able to yeah. find those letters, <clears throat> and then having Carl encourage me, saying, "I'm in this class. You ought to come to the class." <clears throat> those thing, those two uh, situations really propelled and compelled me to write the book. Gotcha. Interesting. I,
0: I would imagine, yeah, the writing is the hardest part and everything else mm-hmm. just kind of falls into place. Um, so you've obviously done a, a, a ton with your life. What achievement are you most proud of?
1: I guess the thing that I'm most proud of, there are two things. Leadership Lafayette I'm certainly proud mm-hmm. of. But in 19—we started Leadership Lafayette in 1985. In 1983, I started a Vietnam veterans group here in Lafayette. Oh, interesting. Back then— all you heard about Vietnam veterans was negative. Mm-hmm. That you know, people would uh, a guy shoots up a McDonald's, ex-Vietnam veteran. It was all negative. And what happened? Vietnam was an unpopular war. <clears throat> when you got home from Vietnam, you never knew who you could talk to about it. You didn't know how they felt about it. Mm-hmm. So. When I got back to Lafayette, people said, where have you been? You've been gone for a while. i had been at LSU in the Army. And you you always wondered, do I tell them that I was in Vietnam? What's their reaction going to be? So most people that got back from Vietnam never had the opportunity to share that story. And uh, so... What I decided to do is start a Vietnam veterans group here in Lafayette to showcase people who had been to Vietnam that had actually accomplished something in life, that weren't losers, right. that, that it, it was important for people to know that Vietnam veterans were not, as a group, uh, a problem. Mm-hmm. They were actually, as a group, very much part of the solution, but they were—they were. They were moving underground. There was an undercurrent. And I I put a little ad in the paper and I said, I want to invite all Vietnam veterans to come to, uh, uh, I had a uh, a friend of mine who was also a Vietnam veteran, had a hotel, a motel, and he said that you can use my conference room over two hundred people showed wow. up. It was unbelievable. Wow. Just a little ad in the paper. They were probably and so glad to were, see that. They were on, uh-huh. they were squatting on the floor speaking oh, Vietnamese. Dawn. They had learned Vietnamese and mm-hmm. they hadn't spoken Vietnamese to anyone else. And there was I mean it was just it was it was a very, very emotional situation. And uh, uh, I remember one guy saying, you know, this is wonderful, I'm, I'm really, I think we ought to form a group. Mm-hmm. He said, but no parades, I'm not marching in any damn parades. <laughs> and uh, so from that, we started a Vietnam veterans group. Then we had uh, a welcome home Vietnam veterans party at Cajun Field. People don't remember that, but we had over 3000 people, Vietnam veterans, showed up at Cajun Field. We had, uh, uh, what was her name? Uh, she was a disc jockey in Vietnam. Uh, anyway, she came in. We had several famous Vietnam people mm-hmm. who came to this. We had a flyover. And uh, so I, thinking back, I think those two issues, my involvement in Vietnam veteran affairs and the, the leadership, Lafayette, yeah. uh, would be that, that's, Things that I would want people to so that's remember. That's fantastic, yeah. Uh, my final question, <laughs> is it was just a two-parter, and that's advice for anybody looking to join the military or get into politics. Do it for the right reasons. You know, I mean, uh, I, I still strongly support the military. Uh, I've got a, a son-in-law who's a lieutenant colonel. He's a, a West Point graduate. Uh, who who I just, he's just a wonderful guy. In life, I've been so fortunate. Both of my daughters married wonderful young men and uh, I've got two great son-in-laws, but there's a special affection for the one that's in the military. And uh, politics, you wanna get into politics for the right reason. Uh, So many people, uh, this isn't gonna sound right, but. For many people in politics, the only thing they've ever accomplished in life is that political office. And so they identify with it. They call themselves congressman this or senator that or representative this. They want you to know I'm important because I'm in politics and I uh, I, I have a concern about that. I think that we should, politics should be the highest calling of public service—it ought to be for people who have really given to society, and now they've risen to the point where they really want to make the world a better place. That's Pollyanna; it, it's not going to happen. But you ask me a question—that's yeah. uh,
0: <laughs> no, that's uh, it's a good answer. I appreciate it. Well, thank you again for being here, and Jen, thank yeah, you for thank letting you, me ask Jason. some questions. Don, what a, what a pleasure, Don Bacay, having you here. And one last thing I meant to mention, I've read online that um, your grandfather, Frank Bacay, was also a single-term representative under Governor, Governor Houston Jones from uh, 1940 to 1944. So history, in Repeats some ways, itself. does repeat yeah. itself in a good way, you know, giving of service. So I just want to thank you for being here, for talking about your book, A Walk in the Park. A Vietnam Comedy, which is an excellent read. You can find it on Amazon. And And thank you uh, for all you've done for our community. I'm grateful to know you and for the service that you've you've done. Well, Jan, us. thank you
1: for having me. Thank you for promoting my book. I'm, because, I'm excited uh, to do
0: this. You're you know, great.
1: <laughs> one thing, when you do something like write a book, you'd like for more people mm-hmm. to enjoy it. And it's the great. reviews have really been yeah. good. Uh, the only bad reviews are from people who say I was too lucky that, you know, that my Vietnam wasn't their Vietnam and I can't help that. That's, that's not me. That's the grace of God. You know, I went over as a infantry Lieutenant, as in a special forces, the fact that I ended up doing what I did Mm -hmm. was through no, nothing that I did. It was handed to me. And, uh,
0: I think that's the message of your book that God does have grace and He bestowed grace sure. upon you, you know, and that there's there, it's really funny though, some of the things that happened to you. I want to encourage people to read it and maybe they can find out more about how you got the boot award and other foibles <laughs> that you experienced. You know, it was
1: <clears throat> there were a lot of funny things that happened, yeah. And fortunately, not a lot of bad things.
0: I'm glad you're here to, to share them, That. <laughs> so, And I want to thank everybody that listens to Discover Lafayette. You can get this episode and all of our podcast episodes on the website, discoverlafayette.net. And I want to encourage you, please, to subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can get this for free delivered. Uh, into your inbox, on your, your phone, or any device you use uh, every week. We release these every Friday. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, I'm Jan Swift.